0: Hello and welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin, looking at all the news and developments coming out of the war between Russia and NATO on the territory of the unfortunate land known as Ukraine. Today we're going to be taking a look at the latest from the front line and then turn to other wider issues, including some interventions from German politicians, former German politicians, in the debate around the war, the sanctions and everything else. First of all, looking at some details from the front lines, in the Donetsk People's Republic, the settlement of Andreevka has been completely occupied now by the Russian forces with more than 40, 40 Ukrainian Personnel reported to have been killed in fighting today, with two tanks and five armored fighting vehicles also having been destroyed. Again, as always emphasized, these are Russian claims. Uh, there's little confirmation coming from the Ukrainian government on this as yet, though the Russian MOD is much more cautious in its announcements regarding the conquest of territory than various Russian military bloggers are, so this is pretty much confirmed by multiple sources on at least the Russian side as of as of now. In the area of Kupyansk, the Ukrainian armed forces attempted an attack uh, around the area of uh, Kuzemovka, and This is in, up in the Lukansk People's Republic. And the Russians are claiming that this was prevented by the usage of um, heavy artillery and flamethrower rocket systems. Uh, with more than 60 Ukrainian personnel killed, six tanks destroyed, and five armored fighting vehicles. And of course, the usual accompaniment of four cars were destroyed. Uh, that's four, that's either jeeps um, or pickup trucks or just domestic cars which the Ukrainians are using to transport uh, their armed forces around in. Moving on, in the area of Krasny Liman a company tactical group of um, the Ukrainian armed forces was in a uh, firefight in the area of Stelmakovka, and this resulted in over 20 Ukrainian personnel being killed and wounded, and one tank and four armoured fighting vehicles being destroyed. In the southern part of the Donetsk People's Republic, the armed forces of Ukraine attempted to carry out an attack on the positions of the uh, dug-in and fortified Russian troops there and this resulted in 30 ukrainians uh, being killed four armored fighting vehicles being destroyed a free pickup truck being eliminated the pickup truck being of course the favourite of ISIS back in the day and maybe in the future. So there's various other comings and goings on the front line but the uh, focus of most coverage today remains around Atyamovsk or Bakhmut depending upon your pronunciation uh, preferences and there is continued progress there of the Russian forces uh, today of course the Wagner group playing a prominent, very prominent role over there as they have been from the beginning of the assault on the city and there are reports that the Ukrainians are actually transferring more men and resources that have been freed up from the Kherson front up to Bakhmut to try and stabilize the situation there including uh, M777 artillery pieces. So there's still uh, a degree of um, cloudiness should we say fog of war stuff going on over how long it's going to take for Artemovsk uh, to uh, fall, for it to be finally fully taken over by the Russian forces, but given that there's been pieces in the New York Times uh, talking about the horrendous Ukrainian losses there, and it's more and more becoming acknowledged on the Western side of things, that things are not going well for Ukraine in Artyomovsk, then it is clear that they are softening up public opinion for the inevitable, which is that the city is going to fall under Russian control in the very near future. So... Uh, wait and see on that one. There is talk of the Russian forces making steady advances around the edges of Artemovsk, as they have been uh, for a long time now. The troops uh, of the Donetsk People's Republic, formerly the Donetsk People's Republic militia, now, of course, formally incorporated um, into the structure of the Russian armed forces, and the Wagner troops are edging around the city of Artemovsk, and they are taking the settlements that surround uh, the, uh, the central city to completely cut off the Ukrainian forces as, as much as they can from the outside as I said on the last broadcast, this has already resulted in a severely restricted um, transport in and out of the city, which of course prevents the Ukrainians from evacuating their wounded, for, prevents them from um, bringing in supplies, uh, because the Russians have control over uh, or fire control over the roads in and out of the city, which makes it incredibly difficult to bring anything in without it getting blown up. So that is now only. A matter of time before that falls, as as I said. Even the Western media is now acknowledging that point. And a reminder of why Archimovsk is so important: it sits on a major roadway, and if they take the city and the surrounding area, they have access to several major crossroads, enabling them to control traffic flows and, of course, move their own men more easily. The Russians can, and of course, it pushes further into uh, Ukrainian-occupied territory, further leaving a, um, or developing something of a cauldron, potential cauldron at least, around the Ukrainian troops further north, up towards um, Sivetsk and other places um, north of Artemovsk. So, key strategic town to take. It'll be a big um, tactical victory and also a huge morale boost for the Russians when it eventually does fall. And it should be said also that the Russians continue advances in small ways throughout the rest of the Donetsk People's Republic. So this is an ongoing situation. Uh, We are still, of course, waiting for uh, the beginning of the uh, new new Russian offensives wherever they come or however they are uh, formatted. And it should be said that um, the latest statement from uh, Sergei Shoigu of the Russian Ministry of Defense today at a meeting of the Russian Defense Chiefs says that the 300,000 reservists have now almost all gone through their training and their updating, and they are all either deployed or being deployed into the Uh, combat zone. So the Russians are reaching the end point of the uh, mobilization process. Their troops have now almost all gone through the uh, training and retraining and re-equipping process. They are either being moved in themselves or they are allowing other troops to move in to the front lines. And we await to see what outcome this will bring. There have been various different estimates as to how large the Russian forces are going to be across the front lines. If you include, of course, all those uh, troops that are up in uh, Belarus, where they have been training with uh, and alongside the Belarusian army, uh, some say it's around about 570,000 in total. So that's the 200,000, around about 200,000 that were already deployed inside Ukraine. So that's all the uh, militia forces of Donetsk and Lukansk, the Rosgardia units, including like the Chechens and units like that. And then you get three hundred to 380,000 um, reservists being brought in and then 80 odd thousand volunteers. So it makes it up to around about 580,000, according to the lower end estimates. Some, including uh, Colonel McGregor in his commentary, has been saying it's up to around about 700,000 in total will be moved in. Um, Estimates vary, and I guess the Russians are rather uh, happy with the fact that Western estimates do have to vary because... nobody's really sure, it seems, other than of course the Russians themselves. But either way, even if it's the lower end, even if it's 580 or so thousand, that's still considerably more now than the Ukrainians have deployed. It would seem Ukrainians have around about um, what, 250 to 300 thousand at the last estimate I saw of this, though uh, they are of course undergoing their latest wave of mobilisation, I believe their seventh. And there's talk of 40,000 or so Ukrainian uh, troops undergoing training in Britain and other NATO countries who will be ready to be deployed in late winter, early spring. Whether that is too late, of course, I'll come back to later on the program so those are some russian moves that are going on they are slowly getting to the point where they will be ready to make um more substantial assaults across the areas that um they are looking to gain in immediately whether this translates into uh, so-called big arrow assaults is yet to be determined my guess would be that it will be as suravikin promised which will be the slow grinding down of the ukrainian forces on the uh eastern front of Ukraine, and that it will continue in the same manner but with more force behind it. So nothing spectacular like a dash towards the Polish border as yet, I don't think, and I'll come to my reasoning why later on. In the program. But let's look at the moves that the US imperialist bloc has been making over the last few days. There was a summit of NATO foreign ministers in Bucharest, which largely all flash and no bang. There was a funny development where the Romanians officially asked the Ukrainians, who were in, obviously in attendance, to de recognise Moldovan as a language and to classify it as a dialect of Romanian, which is An interesting move and could be seen as just a bit of petty nationalism, but given that The Romanians are eyeing the crisis riven state of Moldova now. It is in a deep crisis. Uh, The economy is falling apart. The pro-EU goon uh, Maya Sandu, who runs the place, and her assemblage of buffoons that are sponsored by the EU and various Moldovan oligarchs, have run the country into the ground. And now they are talking about, of course, measures to restrict the Russian language, which, of course, a large percentage of the population of Moldova does speak. So it's around about 16% or so of the population of Moldova. And of course, then you've got the uh, Transnistria, the breakaway region, which the Ukrainians have been eyeing, and the Romanians are looking at possibly maybe absorbing Moldova. Certainly, it's been talked about persistently. Though at the moment, I would say that the Americans don't seem to be keen on the idea and if they're not keen on the idea and the Romanians are likely to run into resistance or make a mess for themselves then as of right now I don't think it'll happen. But it is something which is clearly being thought about within the ruling circles of Romania. Why wouldn't it be? And the other thing they might be thinking about is if Ukraine collapses then why not take those historic regions of northern Bukovina, Transcarpathia? which are areas which the romanians have some form of territorial claim on and this of course relates to the other um, unspoken though always present truth within all these machinations which is of course that the americans themselves and all their puppets in europe don't have the slightest bit of interest in ukraine itself other than maybe as a source of raw resource extraction they're all looking to see of course how they can use Ukraine to carry out their increasingly fevered dream of a regime change in Moscow. And if they can't achieve that, then how can they inflict as much pain on the Russians as possible using Ukraine? And if that doesn't work well, then the Poles, the Romanians, and probably the Hungarians are all considering, well, can we expand our territory in a bid for, you know, rally-round-the-flag moment of nationalism, preserving traditional Romanian or Polish land from the devouring Russian horde. You can see how the the pipsqueaks in uh, in Bucharest would be attracted to that, as would be the, the mad dogs of Warsaw. So all of this just goes to show that, Uh, The longer this goes on, the more likely it is that these... Uh, nationalistic bourgeois nationalistic tendencies uh, uh, in the eastern European countries with historic land claims over what is or what has been Ukraine are going to look to exercise them and are going to look maybe to absorb other places as well particularly in the case of the Romanians who could absorb Moldova or think that they could. So the longer this goes on the more the the so-called settled borders of Europe start to look very, very shaky. The more that states like Moldova that have always been fragile start to shake and fall apart. And you've got to then look further afield and say that most of the states of Eastern Europe, other than Poland, which has got a bit more stability to it, but Romania has gone through a series of governments over the last few years. Uh, The Bulgarian governments aren't too stable. Because, fundamentally, capitalism in those countries hasn't been a terrific success. I mean, it's slightly stronger in Poland, but even there, you've seen all the effects of deindustrialization and atomization of those societies. Romania and Bulgaria are even worse. And... As the grind in Ukraine goes on, as the war goes on, as the recession that's now very much in play in Europe gets worse, all of these countries are going to start to look for ways to stabilize themselves. And what better way than doing a land grab in land formerly known as Ukraine? It will be tempting for all of them as time goes on. So... The NATO summit uh, produced a series of very uh, contradictory statements, the usual tub-thumping from Jens Stoltenberg about, we will be with Ukraine, we will stand with you, and then uh, making some contradictory statements in interviews today saying, well, we've given Ukraine all this stuff, it's up to them to win. Well, we don't want to escalate with the Russians. It's always a double game in terms of words that they say, because fundamentally what they're trying to do is give themselves some kind of way out, because even an idiot like Jens Stoltenberg can see, or his handlers can see, that things are not going well in Ukraine and things are likely to remain not good and get worse. So they need to give themselves some kind of out. The Ukrainian puppets know this, Uh, Zelensky and Co know that the uh, Europeans or more specifically the French and the Germans and others are getting sick of this, that there's going to be a point where, for reasons of domestic stability, they will find it better to cut the Ukraine loose, and so Zelensky and his uh, cocaine clown posse are trying their best to create circumstances where that doesn't happen. However, it's going to be difficult for them for a couple of reasons. One is the sheer cost that is going to be involved as we move into 2023 of keeping Ukraine afloat. And the latest estimate from the International Monetary Fund is that Ukraine is going to need between three to five billion dollars a month in 2023 just to keep the state going because the economy is disappearing. Economic activity is collapsing. Uh, You can't uh, run the whole thing just on a war economy when you've got no industries that you can turn into a war economy Ukraine used to have all these war industries of the old Soviet Union, a lot of them have gone they're now talking about moving the Ukrainian defence industry to Poland, to the Czech Republic and Bulgaria to basically outsource the whole thing, and that's because it ge- keeps getting destroyed by Russian air raids. And of course, Blinken is now talking about uh, restarting the manufacturing of Soviet-era equipment, specifically shells for Ukraine's Soviet-era field guns on artillery pieces in the Czech Republic and other places, because they don't have enough ammunition for the M777 and the other Western guns that they've given Ukraine. The and they don't have enough of these artillery pieces either. So they would do better. They've worked out actually managing to find or manufacture all of this um, Soviet era artillery p- shells that would be enable Ukraine to use more of the enormous arsenal. They were left by the old Red Army in terms of artillery. So the British and the others are running around the world with an open checkbook trying to find these um, artillery shells that fit the pre-existing Ukrainian weapons, and they're now looking to start factories up with production of them, which is a very twisted set of ironies if you look at the fact that they're now having to restart the production of Soviet-era weaponry in the old Warsaw Pact state. So, a free to five million bill per month to keep Ukraine in the fight and to keep the State from collapsing. Now, will the Europeans specifically swallow that? Will they be willing to pay that bill? Will the Americans be willing to pay that bill? Increasingly dubious, I would argue, as time goes on. The only reason they might be willing to stump that up for a little while at least is to stop the gigantic flow of refugees that would come into europe if they were afraid enough of the political consequences that would follow it i think that they're not quite they're not afraid enough of those consequences i think that as i've argued before there's plenty of people in europe who are looking at a, a giant refugee flow out of ukraine and thinking Not only could we handle that; it'd be very profitable in terms of the employment of Ukrainian cheap labour. So we'll see how that rolls. I mean, it may be that the equation changes here. um, That there's um, if these politicians are faced with a choice between political survival and cutting off Ukraine, then they may choose to cut off Ukraine. But at the moment, it looks like they're going to continue down this path. They're going to continue paying the bill, and they're going to continue stumping up with the cash and the weapon in a manner which is going to be described as the Supporting Ukraine we stand with Ukraine but as I've argued many times before it's not standing with Ukraine it's standing on Ukraine standing on Ukraine to try and elevate yourself above the Russians somehow and with the Ukrainian working class paying the biggest price they'll pay the biggest price in terms of lives lost and they'll t- pay the biggest price in terms of the bill that is finally presented for all this because even if Ukraine survives in some form or another it'll be left a debt burden that they will never be able to pay off. I mean, whatever is left of the country will just be signed over to the Western creditors. So a gigantic cost to keep this thing going. And another gigantic cost, of course, was hinted at by Ursula von der Leyen this week, the um, moronic German uh, president of the European Commission who makes even her Idiotic predecessors look like geniuses and titans of uh, diplomacy by comparison. She stumbled across a speech the other day and stumbled through a speech where she blurted out that a hundred thousand Ukrainians died. She said, "You hundred thousand Ukrainian officers have died." That's not the case. It's a hundred thousand Ukrainian soldiers have died. Now. It's an interesting uh, admission because it's not usually the case that the uh, US or the European countries comment upon the stories of Ukrainian losses. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why von der Leyen did this did she just blurt out a speech because um or blurt out the numbers in the speech because she hadn't bothered to read it beforehand because she was just reading off a teleprompter and she says any words that are put in front of her like Ron Burgundy or is it that this was a more calculated move to get Zelensky to behave to let him know that they know very well how many soldiers that the Ukrainian armed forces have lost and uh they are prepared to divulge this information unless he goes along with them on certain things? Or was it to strengthen the case that uh, von der Leyen was making in that speech for some kind of EU-run war crime tribunal to be directed at the Russians, which they hoped to gain the support of the UN to launch? All very strange ideas. Now, the idea of a War Crimes Tribunal is being used by the EU to justify further asset confiscation. They reckon there's up to 300 billion or perhaps as much as 600 billion in Russian assets, including assets of government and assets of private individuals that they could seize. Whether they can or not is another question. There is conventions um, prohibiting the seizure of state assets, not that that's ever stopped anybody before. And so it could be that this whole talk of um, war crimes tribunals is just a way of uh, the EU essentially justifying seizing all these Russian assets. They say, of course, oh, it's going to be used to rebuild Ukraine. The only thing I can uh, think of as a response to that is, well, if you believe that story, then I have a religion to sell you. It's uh, based on a wonderful system, Called Dianetics. Call this number now for more details. Um, you know, this money will go probably. If it if it does get seized, it may go to uh, keep the Ukrainian government afloat. Zelensky is now saying they'll need a trillion in recovery funds, but. A lot of it will be skimmed off the top. A lot of it will disappear into various corrupt channels. A lot of it will end up in overseas bank accounts, and there'll be a report coming out from like Transparency International in 10 years' time to say, oh, yeah, all that money. uh turns out it bought a lot of villas in Switzerland, Miami, um the coast of Italy, and various other locations that are not on any map. So, it's all just a squalid and corrupt move, but it did produce a uh, rather embarrassing vault fast from von der Leyen whose speech was edited uh, again to remove the offending number. And it does lead us to think, well, how many men have actually died in this? Now, the 100,000 number is now something that has been talked about by Shoigu, confirmed almost by von der Leyen, and is the estimate for around about how many Ukrainians had died by September which is uh it was in late September that Shoigu gave that estimate. Now there are others claim around 320,000 Ukrainians who are officially listed as missing in action. That's a figure that's been quoted by amongst others uh, Scott Ritter. Now, if those 320,000 are in captivity, then, or uh, or a large amount of them were in captivity, then I think we would have known about it. And there would be footage coming out of the huge amount of Ukrainians in captivity. But a lot of the Ukrainian prisoners that have been taken have been traded back again for Russians uh, and allied forces who have been in POW conditions. So where... Are all these Ukrainians? Let's assume, for the purposes of argument, that that three hundred twenty thousand figure is inflated. Let's cut that in half, so one hundred eighty thousand. That's still an awful lot of men unaccounted for, even if we take it that there's only half of that three hundred twenty thousand figure. So where are they all now? I've mentioned this before, but it's worth just dwelling on it for a moment. The story that's been coming out, not just of Russian sources, from Russian independent journalists and military correspondents, but also from Ukrainians, from Ukrainian channels, uh, on social media platforms, especially Telegram, is that the unit commanders of the Ukrainian army will routinely label dead men as missing, because if they label them as missing and report them as officially missing, not dead, not wounded, but missing, they still get paid the allowances for those men that are officially listed as missing. So it's in the uh, particularly corrupt commanders' interests to not list these men as dead, even if they were in a trench that's been heavily bombarded by Russian artillery fire and nobody's come out alive, well, we'll just chalk them up as missing. So either way, whether you believe the 320,000 number or whether it's less than that, we're looking at another six figures of Ukrainian personnel who are probably dead. So we could be looking at 200,000, we could be looking at 300,000, we could be looking at 400,000. I think by the end of this, we will probably see a casualty rate far in advance of 100,000. I think that's just what has been officially been able to be confirmed. And you look also at the number of photographs coming out of Ukrainian graveyards, you see gigantic amounts of uh, freshly dug graves with Ukrainian flags flying over them. And this is only going to get worse I mean, Russians said, or Putin himself said, it was about demilitarization. And the said, we need to destroy the enemy's army, and that's what they're doing. And I really don't think that 40,000 extra men who've been thrown through a 15-week training course in um, Britain or any other NATO country being dumped into this front line that's really has turned into a meat grinder, even by the admission of former NATO commanding General Wesley Clark, is going to make all that much difference. But because the NATO countries, particularly within the political structure of the United States, this is, the United States can't agree on a way out. You have people inside the Biden White House and the uh, the Biden administration, who are looking at trying to find some way out of this, but they can't see a way out for themselves at the moment that doesn't make them look weak and defeated, because they would have been. They have been. And so... The hardliners get to say, just one more big heave, one more package. And Biden's gone back to Congress today asking for billions more in terms of support for military um, supplies and, of course, costs to keep the Ukrainian state running. And interestingly enough, $900 million specifically uh, for the support of Ukrainians inside the USA. Now, some might say, well, that's for refugees. Some of it may get to refugees. I have a suspicion, though, that a lot of it will be going to Ukrainian um, so-called civil society organizations Organizations which will be organizing s- support for far-right positions within the United States for uh, Ukrainian ultranationalist organization. And their purpose will be to reinforce support for... Um, arming and supplying Ukraine by carrying out lobbying actions. I think that's what some of this money will go for. It'll be labeled something else. It'll be um, d- labeled as contributions to Ukrainian cultural organizations into uh, it, that work to enable the further integration of new arri- newly arrived Ukrainians into the United States. But in actual fact, what they're doing is running essentially Banderist organizations that uh, recruit from Uh, Ukrainians in the US, and carry out lobbying work of uh, domestic American politicians to keep this whole thing going. That's what some of it will end up going to. Now moving to other uh, startling and not so startling admission from various different political figures, there was a Interview given recently by Angela Merkel, former Chancellor of Germany, long-serving Chancellor of Germany, uh, where she talks about the fact that um, she wanted to negotiate a new treaty with the Russians towards the end of her chancellorship, and that uh, this ultimately didn't happen, and the, uh, the relationship with Putin she felt had broken down, and this was an interesting interview given to the German press for a number of reasons. First of all, Merkel reflects in on um, a, even by her own admission, though she didn't say it in as many words, um, a failure of her chancellorship. Uh, she was one of the primary movers, along with Macron behind Minsk too. A failure of that reflects, of course, on her. And also, it should be said that Merkel needs to be seen really as a catastrophic failure of a of leader, given that all she did was preside over Decay in Germany, preside over deindustrialization, further atomization of German society, further financialization of the German economy, the, the hollowing out of German society. That if you listen to the um, episodes on Germany that we've done in the past with um, Elena Lang and Michael Burkhardt, you listen to their accounts of life in Germany and how under Merkel everything got so much worse. And you can only conclude that Merkel was a chancellor at a time of German capitalist decay, which is why Schultz looks such a buffoon because he's inherited a mess, which he helped create, by the way. He was one of the uh, vice-chancellors of Merkel during her last administration in a grand coalition. So, Schultz does not escape responsibility. But Merkel's failure on uh, Minsk two is very interesting, because she was reflecting about how she used to have one-on-one meeting Putin, and towards the end, Putin was bringing in uh, Lavrov, because essentially it seems the relationship between the two of them broke down. And it's interesting to reflect on the relationship that Putin has with Germany, of course, serving there in his KGB career towards the end of the old DDR. And he, representing, of course, Russian capitalism, has sought to build a Solid relationship with Germany the years because of course uh, German and Russian capitalism did a lot of good business before World War One and were doing a lot of good business through the later 90s and into the 2000s and Putin of course speaks German fluently he addressed the German Reichstag in 2001 in German he speaks to Merkel one on one of course using the German language and he looked to build up a very mutually beneficial economic relationship with the Germans because this made total sense from the point of view of Russian capitalism. So he looked to build this and maintain this and he went a long way towards achieving certain objectives here. Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 were some of those objectives which is of course why the British blew them up or why the British got the Poles to blow them up and Putin himself, I think, has invested quite a lot of political capital in this relationship, and of course, very profitable for Russian capitalism. So he didn't want to give this up. So both from the point of view of the Russian capitalist class and the point of view of Putin as a politician, as a leader, as a man, he didn't want to give up the relationship with the Germans. But it looks as if, in the end, he concluded that the German political class were not worth dealing with or not worth taking seriously, including Merkel. Even though he took Merkel seriously for a long time, even though there was all the talk in the press that they hated each other, they certainly took each other seriously. But Merkel's inability to deliver upon this treaty, specifically Mins- the Minsk II Accords, which were ratified by a decision taken by the UN Security Council. These were very official agreements. And of course, Petro Poroshenko confirmed a couple of times recently, both to the Russian pranksters and in a candid interview that he gave on camera to Ukrainian television, that, well, we never meant a word of it. We were just buying time for ourselves to build up our army. And everybody, certainly in uh, British and American spheres, of political spheres seem to acknowledge that as well, and that, that was they were never taking it seriously. Whether Merkel and Macron were is another question. Certainly, Merkel seems to have, judging from this interview she's given, expected to be able to persuade the Russians to engage in another agreement, even though the uh, agreement that had been signed um, that was supposed to be the formation of a peace settlement in Ukraine, Minsk 2, the Ukrainians and the Americans and the British had basically wiped their asses with it. Now, Merkel seems to have been surprised that the Russians weren't willing to play ball for another agreement at the uh, end uh, or the latter period of Merkel's time in office in 2021 but why on earth would they and one of the things that Merkel and Macron seemed to not really understand at all was the changing domestic political situation in Russia itself which is that the uh, Russian population knew very well that the situation in Donbass was militarily getting worse that the Ukrainians were making a push that they were increasing and intensifying their heavy shelling of the civilian areas, and it was clear that they were getting ready for some kind of assault. Zelensky himself, in one of his addresses in later 2021, in the Munich Security Conference last year, was talking about retaking Crimea. He was also talking about a nuclear program, though apparently that was those were rather unlicensed remarks. So the domestic political situation in Russia, which you can get a, a gauge of by looking back at the coverage that the Communist Party, of the Russian Federation, was doing in their uh, newspaper, Gazeta Pravda, and they were calling in the Duma and campaigning for this across Russia uh, for essentially the special military operation to begin, for the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk to be uh, uh, recognized by the Kremlin. Uh, There was a lot of talk both from the left and the right in Russia that the Kremlin was selling out, that Putin was selling out to the the Germans. uh, And this was making the political situation for Putin and the Russian government much more difficult to the point where it would have been exceedingly problematic for them to agree to any new compromise which people who are making or observing the situation in Ukraine from the Russian point of view knew very well that the Ukrainians wouldn't stick to it because of course the only pelea that really counts in Ukraine other than Russia is of course the United States. and the United States had US imperialism had no intention whatsoever of pushing the Ukrainians into an agreement, not when the Ukrainian army was going to be so useful as a point of pressure against the Putin government. So Putin not only would find it enormously politically difficult to sign any new agreement with the Germans and the French as supposed guarantors of it, he'd also exhausted his own patience and those of uh, his inner circle, including Lavrov, with the Germans and the French, um, in terms of taking them seriously as diplomatic parties here, given that they'd signed this thing, they'd watched the Ukrainians trash it at the behest of the British and the Americans, and the Germans and the French had done nothing. So what was the plan here? was Merkel's plan to secure a new agreement to essentially just put off the confrontation for another few years. That certainly seems to have been what she was aiming at. Because if you read critiques of Merkel and both her domestic policies and the policies towards the EU, it's all about, for her, just deferring. Just deferring... Keeping things going for another few years, another few years, another few years. And this is the approach that the German government took throughout the Eurozone debt crisis, um, along with insisting, of course, that the Greeks um, paid their debts uh, no matter what happened to them how bad Greek society was hit by economic disintegration but Merkel was unwilling or unable to deal with the um, escalating problems within the EU itself and perhaps nobody could deal with the contradictions mounting there. She put off and fudged on the idea of a European defence capacity which of course just made them more dependent upon NATO uh, to the great frustration of both Francoise Hollande and then Macron. So Merkel's method for dealing with things is to essentially just fudge them and keep it going a few years and hope that something came up. Her method for dealing with the Russians was going to be the same thing. And she was talking about in the interview that, oh, well, we could have offered sanctions relief and things like that. So what they, essentially the German approach seemed to have been was, well, we'll just put it off for another few years. And we hope that we can buy off the Russians with some sanctions relief, only to be confronted with the fact that the political realities in Russia had changed and that they appeared to have been unaware of this that the pressure on the Russian government was increasing from the population and from the organized political forces across the spectrum in Russia. And that makes it would have made it very dangerous for Putin to defy those inc- that increasing pressure and carry out a sellout of Donbass, which is what it would have been rightly seen as had he signed any other agreement with a already untrustworthy party in the form of the Ukrainian state and their foreign backers. And it raises another interesting question, which is why did Merkel's will not understand this. Merkel, of course, has spoken to Putin one-on-one on on many occasions. She was the one who was dealing principally with the Russians over... Minsk too, and you would have expected her to have some kind of understanding of the domestic situation in Russia, but apparently she didn't. She also seems to have been convinced that all that the German government and the other European powers needed to do was to dangle some financial and economic enticements in front of Putin's nose, and then the Russian government would forget all about Donbass and potential NATO expansion. But then again, this also proved to be disastrously wrong. And you would have thought that they would have learned something from the war in Georgia in 2008, when, of course, the Russian armed forces and Russian government was much weaker than it is now. And yet still, they moved in and dealt a defeat to the Georgians, even though, of course, it revealed deficiencies within the Russian armed forces in the process of doing that. But... In 2021, when so many years had gone by, there had then been a seven-year war that had dragged on in eastern Ukraine, or what is now southwestern Russia, the domestic political pressure on the Russian government was growing to take action over Donbass, and the idea of NATO, or more specifically United States, um, short-range missiles or intermediate-range missiles being placed in Ukraine that could hit Moscow and St. Petersburg very, very quickly was even less acceptable to a Russian government that had been slowly placing itself, in developing its economy and armed forces to the point where it was much stronger and more capable of delivering a military response. Given all those circumstances, why on earth did the leader of German capitalism think that dropping a few sanctions would be enough to lure the Russians back in for another treaty, which they knew very well would go nowhere and would not be respected, and then they would be back at the treaty table under worse conditions, with even more NATO weaponry and NATO training for the Ukrainian armed forces having been conducted um, by the time that military action did come around. See, Putin and the others in the Russian government's higher echelons had obviously decided at a certain point that war was more likely than not. And the only thing that Merkel, and by extension Macron, could really have done back in 2021 was to tell the Ukrainians, look, unless you actually implement Minsk, the Minsk Agreements, In full, then, essentially, you are not getting into the European Union. You're not even going on the waiting list. You're going off the list, even further down, below where the Turks are. That would have been potentially one way of pressuring them to abide by it. But, of course, then we get to the point that I've returned to over and over again since this latest round of the crisis began. Zelensky himself would have been either maidaned out or killed if he'd have actually tried to stop the war, as they threatened to do, that is, the Banderists threatened to do that to him, should he insist that Minsk II be abided by. So that leads us back again to the question of the insoluble nature of these contradictions. Yes, it was possible to get a Ukrainian government that tried to implement Minsk II sincerely, but that Ukrainian government would have not have lasted long because of the political forces inside Ukraine and the political contradictions inside Ukraine that stem from the weaknesses of uh, Ukrainian capitalism and thus the Ukrainian state, creating political room and a necessity for the oligarchs in the form of Kolomoisky and others to bankroll these Banderist formations to secure their interests, because by intention, the Ukrainian state was too weak to actually rein these people in, in the way that even someone like Lukashenko did, and make um, capitalism in Ukraine exist on a more stable basis, which, of course, gives us the current situation in Ukraine where no Ukrainian government, even one that was like Zelensky was, elected specifically to implement the Minsk Accords and end the war, is able to do so without coming into a headlong collision with the forces of Banderism. And this then raises another question, which is, well, would any political force have been capable of resolving the situation in Ukraine? And the answer is, the only way you could possibly have resolved that would have been through either A new regime that came in, which overthrew the political structure that had been imposed by the Maidan, which eliminated the Banderas battalions as a political and military force through either, shall we say, voluntary disarmament or something much more severe than that. And what force is going to generate that? Nothing in the Ukrainian bourgeoisie indicates that they will be capable of generating that kind of movement. To, that would have been able to essentially revolutionize the Ukrainian state. Nothing in the Ukrainian bourgeoisie gives any indication that they would be capable of doing that. And there are no political figures floating around that could have done that. The only way that the war in Ukraine could have been brought to a close would have been through the unified action of the Ukrainian working class. And sadly, even though a uh, Ukrainian communist party remained a fairly strong presence until 2014, the Ukrainian working class has been crushed and atomized and has no uh, leadership. Its organizations are very weak. So because the political situation in Ukraine remained like that, remain with the only force capable of making any changes in Ukraine was the ultra-reactionaries, who were of course at the beck and call of US imperialism. And so, would any German chancellor have been able to do any different? And that brings us, of course, to the question of, well, what is the nature these days of German capitalism? And the answer lies in the fact that German capitalism has has been steadily weakening for many, many years, all the way back, in fact, to the mid-2000s, even when the growth rates and the GDP rates were nominally higher. There was still a developing problem there, which Schröder, all the way back in the mid-2000s, tried to address with the Hartz IV reform, and which Merkel took further every time she got re-elected but didn't address the underlying crisis of German capitalism, which was that it was becoming progressively or regressively weaker in comparison to its nearest competitors, that its industrial base was slowly being hollowed out, though at a much lower rate than France or never mind Britain, but the crisis was still there. And so the Merkel years, I argue, should be seen in the same way as the Cameron years in Britain or the Obama years in the United States, which is that these are all governments that represented the delusions of the German British or American ruling class that they could find some way back to the model that had imploded in 2008 they'd thrown a lot of money at the situation they' thrown a lot of fake money at the situation they'd pumped liquidity into the system they'd refloated the banks and they set about trying to rebuild the system that existed before 2008 with a few alterations. And particularly in the case of the Obama presidency, they really believed that they'd done it. And then until, of course, they got the nasty orange wake-up call in 2016. But... Merkel, Cameron, Obama, all figures of delusion, all figures of transition, but not in a good transition in the, for the capitalist class, all figures that represent the capitalist class deluding itself that it could uh, fudge its way out of the problems that it had and that somehow it could recover from 2008 without the horrific process of class war and mass capital and labor liquidation that would be required to actually regenerate capitalism in a serious way. So Merkel fundamentally is a chancellor of delusions and procrastination and obfuscation and all of her legacies will be seen in wholly negative ways and the interview she gave recently indicates that she has not only not learned anything but has not reflected upon anything. Which leads us to another figure who could have been Chancellor in an alternate universe, and that is the figure of Oscar Lafontaine, a more interesting figure, uh, politically speaking, than Merkel in many ways, a senior figure within the German SPD for many, many years, a candidate for Chancellor in 1990, a finance minister for a year under Schroeder before his resignation, and then the founder of Die Linke, the left party, and then a party he helped to found and then resigned from earlier this year, stating that it was no longer an alternative to the politics of social insecurity and inequality, which pretty much sums up where D. Linker is now. But the interesting thing about this interview was, of course, that he reflected upon the origins of the war, and in that he has a more honest appraisal than most German politicians, and of course it should be noted in passing that he is the husband of Sarah Wagenknecht, who is one of the more interesting members of the, uh, the German Reichstag, and one of the few uh, coherent critics of the Schultz Harbeck Beerbock government and uh, who has highlighted the damage done to the German working class by the sanctions regime which of course has uh, vastly increased the price of energy and is leading to further Deindustrialization of the German economy, though I will restate again that the sanctions regime and the uh, escalating cost of energy may well be the latest cause of further deindustrialization, but it is not the cause of deindustrialization in Germany. The cause of deindustrialization in Germany is as the, the same as it is in Britain, which is that of the declining rate of profits and the natural tendency of capitalism to drift away from commodity production towards the simple movement of money. And that, again, is the reason why deindustrialization takes place. There are specific policies and events in the economic and political world which make deindustrialization go at a faster or a slower pace, but none of these are the root cause. But LaFontaine, to return to his interview, reflected that the um, the Americans bore a heavy responsibility for the war in Ukraine, though of course he repeated a lot of the uh, anti-Russian talking points you'd expect from a politician, as vargonek does as well. But he said that if he had been in charge, he would not have uh, allowed sanctions to pass that affected the... German economy. Now, interesting thing to say, will you be able to do it in practice is the rather obvious question. And the answer I tend towards is no, because if you look at what the sanctions regime was meant to do, it was meant to destroy the Russian economy by effectively making um, the sale of oil and gas increasingly difficult, even though, of course, they gave themselves a lot of workarounds, the Europeans did, and they are still getting their hands on Russian oil, even though it is now probably labelled as Indian oil. Uh, given the amount of sales that the Russians are making to India these days. But LaFontaine said he wouldn't have done it. And okay, well, credit to him for saying that. But I very much doubt that he would have been able to deliver on that, because the big weapon that the Americans had in mind was, of course, the imposition of sanctions on Russian energy which was the whole purpose of the sanctions package in reality. All the uh, bells and whistles that came with it such as sanctions on oligarchs, yacht seizures things like that, those were all just window dressing. The real meat of the issue was the cutting off of Russian energy and of course that would have if LaFontaine or Wagenecht or any politician who took that point of view had been Chancellor of Germany you would not have been able to take that point of view to try and push that as a policy without running into first his hysterical opposition from the rest of the political spectrum in Germany, and given that any left government in Germany would probably be a rather shaky coalition, it would have been under immediate pressure the same way Schultz was. Now... LaFontaine reflects in his interview that Schultz did try to take that position, but was basically overruled by the Americans. But more specifically, the Americans were over, able to overrule Schultz because his own coalition in the form of the lunatic Baerbock and the moron Harbeck were fully in support of uh, the sanctions regime, no matter what damage it did to the German working class. So Schultz's very weak position reflected that in his policies, but any German government, unless it got elected with an overwhelming majority, would likely be a coalition which would be destabilised because of the sheer weight of the influence of American imperialism on the German political system. Now, recently comments surfaced from an interview given over a decade ago by a German political figure by the name of Werner Wiedenfeld, who was Helmut Kohl's coordinator uh, for policy regarding the relationship with the United States. And he, in this interview, openly stated that if you have a small disagreement with the Americans, they'll try and uh, twist your arm. If you have a big disagreement with them, then the blackmail comes out. Now, this was a comment made a number of years ago, and who knows if it's true or not, but certainly the influence within the German political system of US imperialism is very large. And we know that they tapped Merkel's phone. We know that they were very paranoid about Merkel's attempts to continue to build the economic relationship with the Russians. Uh, Obama was covert about it. Trump was overt about it. And we know that they conduct extensive surveillance of basically every major political figure in the West to make sure that they know what they're doing. So I don't doubt that they have blackmail material on a number of German politicians. Olaf Scholz is eminently blackmailable. When he was mayor of Hamburg, he was dogged by corruption allegations, which I'm sure the American intelligence services will have researched rather thoroughly. So he certainly got um, dirt in the closet there, so to speak. But. More so than that, the Americans retain uh, thousands of troops inside the borders of Germany. They retain an extensive influence over the German military and intelligence services. And this gives them an enormous weight which they can bring to bear on the German political class. Now, of course, it is technically possible for a figure like LaFontaine or whoever else to if they were a chancellor, defy this. But it takes a lot of uh, political capital to be able to take the risk that would mean defying the the Americans and basically going against them on a fundamental issue. Now, would you be able to do that from within the shaky um, situation that a, a coalition government would find itself? Not if you're in some shaky coalition government. The only way that a chancellor of Germany could stand a chance of defying the United States would not be through some kind of political maneuvering or trying to secure some kind of shaky majority in the Reichstag or anything else, it would be via a direct appeal to the German working class. And by going out to the German working class and rallying them to support a particular policy and mobilizing the masses in a way that would intimidate the various figures in the German political sphere and state structure into going along with the policy of the elected government. Because otherwise... These various forces in the economic and political and security spheres would move heaven and earth to defeat a German leader who tried to defy the U.S. Empire. The only way you could do it was a mobilization of the working class. And is Olaf Schultz capable of doing that? No, most definitely not. But again, these are that would be a hugely risky proposition, which almost nobody in Germany at the moment would be capable of carrying out. Nobody in Britain uh, would be capable of doing it either, for that matter. So when you're looking at these narrow confines of bourgeois politics and these fools that run it when the question is asked well why don't they do something sensible and a lot of people ask this why don't there doesn't olaf schultz act in the interests of german industry why doesn't he do this that or the other the answer is that because of the nature the weakened nature of german capitalism the um, dominant nature of the you know, u.s imperialists within germany the thoroughly uh, compromised nature of the german military and security apparatus it being very much beholden to the United States. All of that taken together means that there's very little chance of any kind of rebellion from within that system succeeding. And the truth is about figures like LaFontaine, Wagenknecht in Germany, or Corbyn in Britain, or Sanders in the United States, that these are all men and women who are out of time. They are out of time because the time for the kind of social democracy, even of a slightly more radical figure like LaFontaine, um, that, that they propose is long gone. Capitalism in Europe even in Germany, is in far too deep a crisis for reformism to actually be able to enact any of its dreamy propositions now. It's all gone. The simple choice now is either between the slow grinding down of working class living standards or the very rapid grinding down of working class living standards. Those are the two choices that capitalism is to prepared to offer. Uh, to get anything more than that, you would need to mobilise, the working class would need to mobilise in a way not seen for decades. And if you're going to go that far just to get a few reforms, well, you might as well go the whole way and sink the whole system, because you would have to near, use near-revolutionary or revolutionary tactics of mass mobilization, strikes, occupations, destabilization of the economy and state in any country, Germany, Britain, or the United States, to actually get the smallest change completed. And my argument is simple. You have to do that kind of enormous mobilization to secure some paltry reforms, no matter how beneficial they may or may not be, then you might as well go for the whole thing. Because in the state that we are in now, capitalism cannot afford to allow reform. So the choice before us is actually quite clear. And so even though the likes of La Fontaine seem more interesting, more compelling figures in many ways than the pallid mannequins that make up the conventional political class, the bourgeois political class, they are just as utopian as any other selection of dreamers within the parliaments of Europe. The only realistic proposition going forward is the revolutionary overthrow of capital. That is a much more realistic proposition than the idea of a revived social democracy, which is neither possible nor desirable. Thank you for listening today. I'll be back again tomorrow with another update. Until then, thank you for listening, and be sure to head on over to Patreon to check out the latest episode in the World War II series, and there'll be another uh, patrons-only uh, special later this week. It will be an article review of a piece by Goran Furborn in this month's New Left Review. I'll be taking a look at that. Until tomorrow, though, thank you for listening. He came to hide when he ran from you in a private detective overcoat. Dead dead man shoes, the pretty things of Knightsbridge lying for a minister of state. A far cry right from the nod And then, Here at Tracer's Gate. Is the